If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and make your way to John chapter 14. So we continue from last week and we see the disciples and Jesus in the upper room. It's typically called the upper room discourse and Jesus is preparing for the end. He's preparing for his earthly life to be finished upon the cross. And as we look at this passage today, it's important to understand the context of what's happening in the upper room discourse. If you remember last week, Pastor Seth uh, talked about the Lord's Supper. He introduced the upper room discourse. And within this discussion, the disciples have just learned some very troubling news. They learned that one of them is going to deny Jesus. One of the twelve is going to deny him. One of the twelve is going to betray him. And then their, their Lord, their Savior, their best friend that they've spent all this time with is then going to leave them. So you can imagine the anxiousness in their heart, the, the weary hearts that they are dealing with. The disciples are anxious about what is going to happen, who's going to deny them, who's going to betray them. Their best friend is leaving them. All of this is happening. And today there are so many things going on in our world. And we know that we all come in here with anxious and weary hearts. That we're tired. That some of you may be burnt out. That there may be anxiety that is so strong in your heart that you don't know how to deal with it. And as we look in this passage, the disciples are dealing with the same thing. And what we're going to find is that there is hope and that there is love in Jesus. And that if you are dealing with this, that nothing is wrong with you. That really, truly, nothing is wrong with you and that there is hope and there is strength found in Jesus. It's how we respond to our weary hearts that matters. And Jesus says, I know how you're feeling. And I got a solution for you. So as we unpack this solution, I want to ask you, when your heart is anxious and weary, where do you run? Do you run to your own strength or do you run to the love of our Savior? So let me pray for us and then we will unpack this together. God, we thank you for our time together today that we have an opportunity to worship you, to proclaim that you are enough, that you are the beautiful one. And God, we know that so many of us are working through anxious and weary hearts and minds that um, feel like they can't be beat. So God, help us see in this passage that there is a way to draw near to you. That when we feel like we should run away, we should run into you. Because that's our source of love, that's our source of comfort, that's our source of hope. So God, attune our hearts to what you have to say to us in these few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. There's really two things in this passage as we think about how to deal with the weary heart. The first thing I want us to see is found in verses 1, and, or 1 through 14, and that is the promise of drawing near in confidence. The promise of drawing near in confidence. Verses 1 through 4 show us how Jesus assures the disciples that they need, in the midst of their weary hearts, they need to have faith and they need to believe in him. 
What's interesting is that we remember what Jesus is doing. Jesus knows exactly what he's preparing to do, that he's going to die this gruesome death on the cross. And what's interesting is that Jesus has every right for them to comfort him. That he has every right to say, I shouldn't be comforting you right now, you should be comforting me. But we see the Savior does what the Savior always does. And even when his heart is weary, and even when he is anticipating the cross, the gruesome death, the beatings, he is then comforting the disciples. He's the one doing the comforting. So often when difficulties come over our lives, and they swarm in on all sides, we often want to take a time out. And we want to take a step back. And we want to just give it a moment. And Jesus says we need to lean in. That we need to have faith and we need to believe. When Jesus, or when we want to lean out, Jesus calls us to then lean in. When things are challenging, it's our responsibility to draw near to Jesus in confidence. He says, have faith and believe. Believe also in me. We can have confidence because we're told in these verses that we are to one day be united with the Savior. He says that in verses 2 through 4. We're to be united, and not only is there a place being prepared for us, we have the comfort of having the very path to get there. And that's through Jesus, our salvation, our only hope. So not only is it just like we have this house for you, hopefully you figure out which direction to go to get to that house. He says, I have a house prepared for you, and here's the roadmap of how to get there, and that's through faith in Jesus. Jesus himself, as we'll see, is the way, the truth, and the life. And in believing in him, we participate in these things. We have the way to the Father, we know the truth, and we have been blessed with this eternal life if we have faith in Jesus. And not only do we have confidence that Jesus is preparing a place for us and that we can go to that place, we learn in verse 3 that he takes us to that place. He brings us there. He says, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. If you notice what Jesus is doing here, he says, I'm doing it all. Jesus really is everything. He's prepared the place. He tells you how to get there and then he brings you there because he knows we can't get there by ourselves. We'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough. And we all, in our hearts, have this deep longing to be with Jesus, united in heaven with our Savior. And Jesus tells us in these verses that it will be met. And though we live in a world full of trials and tribulations, we, as Titus 2.13 says, that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we get to this part in verse 5 where Thomas then asks a question of Jesus. And Thomas is really asking on behalf of all the disciples. He's just the one bold enough to speak. And he says, okay, but how do we get there? What do we do? How do we know? And he's asking all of these questions about Jesus. And it spurs on this response of Jesus that's one of the most quoted that we've already mentioned, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is revealing that he is everything. That song we just sang, that he is more than enough, that's what Jesus is saying. And we believe that. 
We believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's important to note here that Jesus is not just blazing this trail ahead of him, that he's figured out this path of life that's better than everything else on this earthly standard, and he's saying, I've made the trail, now you just follow me, and he's commanding others to do it because he has done it. But rather, we know throughout Scripture that Jesus is the way, that he just hasn't taken the way, he is the way, he is the only way. Rather, Jesus himself is the Savior, he's the Lamb of God, and he's the one who speaks and dead men come to life. The reason the disciples eventually came to believe the promises of Jesus, as we see in this passage, is because they really did believe that Jesus was God. They believed Jesus was God. Their assurance of what he was saying was rooted in the deity of Jesus. They believed the promise, and then they drew near as a response. Since I was a kid, I always wanted to know the plan of everything. Like every little detail, I had to have it figured out. When I say as a kid, I mean like right now. Like it's, it's, never, it's never gone away. I have to know the plan. When we're eating breakfast, I have to know what's for lunch and what's for dinner and what my afternoon snack is going to be. And it drives me crazy if I don't know what the plan is. But it also goes to bigger, more complicated things in life. It's not just the silly mundane, what's for breakfast, what's for lunch, do we have enough food in the fridge for dinner, do I need to go to the grocery store? It's so many other things of ministry and education and family and life and so many things that swirl around me that I have to have the plan for. I have to know when this is going to happen and this is going to happen and it all has to fit within my frame of my timeline that I have floating around in my head. And what we see is that the disciples are doing the same exact thing. They've had this idea from Jesus, this plan that he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have faith and you believe in me and then I'm going to the Father. Then I'm coming back for you. You're going to be reunited with me in heaven with the Father for eternity. And they're like, okay, but like, when is that going to happen? Like, I know that's going to happen. I think that's going to happen, but when and how? Like, I know you're going to take me up, but is it going to be like a teleport? Is it going to be, are we going to take a car? Are we climbing a ladder? Like, how are we getting there? They have so many questions. And they're missing the big point. So often when I am worried about the little details, if we're going to have sausage or bacon with our breakfast, I miss the big point that God has provided this beautiful meal for us that we actually get to enjoy. And Thomas does the same thing. And then Philip asks a question. He says, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. All my planning, all my thinking, that will just be enough for us. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in verses 7 through 11, he begins to work through that Jesus is God and that everything he does is in perfect unity with the Father. The Philip's clarifying question illustrates how Jesus is working in unity with the Father. And as Jesus transitions out of this, in verse 12, he really gives this thesis statement of what we're supposed to do when we draw near to, in confidence to Jesus. And in verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. 
Jesus says that those who have drawn near in confidence to Jesus will do the works of the Father. That it's our responsibility that Jesus has commanded us to do the work that he has done. But then it gets even more complicated, and we have the potential to get tripped up here when Jesus says at the back half of verse 12 that we will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So you can just imagine this conversation that's happening. How in the world are we supposed to do greater works than the one who sent us being Jesus? You can imagine as Jesus is telling the disciples this conversation, they're like, okay, we can, we can try, right? Like we can, how about we turn water into wine? That'll be cool. The other disciples are like, no, 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 Jesus has already done that. Okay, well, how about we take someone who is disabled and we bring them back to perfect health? No, 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 Jesus has already done that. And then you can just imagine Peter. We always like to pick on Peter. Peter's like, how about we take someone that's almost dying and we bring them back to health? That's greater works than what Jesus has done. They're like, no, Peter, you don't understand. Were you just not there when they raised Lazarus from the dead? He was in the grave. The point is not that we will do greater physical works than the Savior. It's not that we'll do something greater than Jesus. What he's talking about is that we will be sent by Jesus to the nations. He's talking about the great commission. That is our plan. We draw near in confidence to Jesus and we're being sent out as his proclaimers of the good news, that we will do the works of the Savior. Because he's going to the Father and we'll see that he is sending us a helper, that he's not just saying, okay, it's now Sherry's responsibility to do greater works than Jesus by yourself, but that we will all, if we have a relationship with Jesus, we will have the helper who is the Holy Spirit. As we conclude this section in verses 13 and 14, Jesus then highlights, he transitions from doing the works of the Father, the great commission that we've been given, to this idea of answered prayer. This answered prayer for the believer who is drawn close to Jesus. And it gets really interesting because he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And then in verse 14, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we're like, yeah, that sounds great. So before we run to our knees begging Jesus for a new boat, a bigger house, a nicer car, for me it's a four-door Jeep Wrangler, before we run to Jesus asking for these things, we have to understand what it means to have a genuine prayer. Because Jesus says, whatever you, whatever you pray in my name. So Jesus defines a genuine prayer as a prayer that's prayed in his name that when answered will bring glory to God. That's what he says in verses 13 and 14. That it's a genuine prayer prayed in the name of Jesus, and that when it is answered, it will be used to glorify God. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China in the 1800s, he described what it means to pray in Jesus' name so well. He said this, I used to ask God to help me, but then I asked him if I might help him. Finally, I ended up asking him to do his work in and through me, if he would be so pleased.
pleased. That is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. That Jesus may work in and through me if he is so pleased in that. Verses 1 through 14 are packed with promises of Jesus. That when we draw near to him in confidence, that we will be united with our Savior. That he is preparing a place for us. That Jesus is everything. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's a promise that we have work to do. We have to get our hands dirty. And then when we pray in confidence in the name of Jesus, that he hears it, that he listens, that he understands. And that's glorious news for those of us who are wrestling with weary hearts. Because he sees, he understands, he knows, and he listens. So we see the promise of drawing near in confidence, but we have to answer the second half of that question, where do we go to? I think we see in verses 15 through 31 that we, get, that we draw near to the love of the Savior. We see the promise of drawing near in confidence, but we draw that confidence to the love of the Savior. We see that in verses 15 through 31. If we think back to all the experiences the disciples have had with Jesus. They've been through so much with him. They've been to weddings. They've been to funerals. They've walked through the mundane with Jesus, but they've also seen the extraordinary. They've been through times of want, where they've been hungry, but they've also been in times of plenty. And now their relationship, from their perspective, with Jesus seems to be coming to an end. At least in their minds, it does. And Jesus assures them in these first few verses, 15 through um, 16, that Jesus, that, that this is not the end of their relationship with Jesus. That this isn't the end. Rather, their relationship with him will continue to grow and develop. And Jesus said that their relationship will be marked by one single characteristic. We see that in verse 15, and that is love. That their new relationship, that while it may not be what they're used to on earth, their relationship will continue to grow and develop through love. Jesus says that if they love him, they will continue to keep the commandments and they will do the work of the Father. They will grow in their love for Jesus and it will manifest itself out in many different ways. One of the ways love is manifested towards Jesus is through obedience. We see that in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can also draw near to Jesus and to his love in many different ways. The first way is that we draw near to love through the helper. We see that in verses 16 and 17. Jesus says that a helper is coming for them. The Greek word that John uses here is the only time it's ever used in the Bible is by John. And it means a helper, a counselor, a comforter. This is the Holy Spirit that is going to dwell with believers. And you can imagine that this is comforting news. As their hearts are weary, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you a counselor, a protector, a helper, a comforter. This is the Holy Spirit. 
And as we continue on in verses 18 through 21, we see just what it means when Jesus leaves them. He proclaims in verse 18 that I will not leave you as orphans, but rather this helper is coming for them. He's not just abandoning them, but he's sending someone with them. And as we keep reading, while the world is confused and unable to see, those that are in Christ will be of understanding. And Jesus says, and on that day, meaning on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the believers, they will now understand what's happening. They will see it. So we can draw near to the love of Jesus through the Helper, through the Holy Spirit, through our Comforter, But we can also see how we're supposed to draw near and the type of love that we're supposed to show toward Jesus. We said that our obedience is drawn from our love of Jesus. And we see that in verses 20 through 26. We see here that the type of love that we're supposed to have, that it's our motivation to obey Jesus, to do the works of Jesus. Obedience must flow out of a spirit of love. We can't have obedience if we first don't have love. And we'll never obey his word if we think, if we feel, if we feel like we have to do a moral obligation, if we have to fulfill that moral obligation. We'll never fully obey Jesus if all we want to do is shore up our standing before him. It all flows out of a love of God. And that if you're struggling with sin today, aren't we all? If we want to conquer that, the answer is not just to try harder, but rather love Jesus more. And if you struggle to obey Jesus, then focus on loving him more. Beg Jesus to give you a passion for him that then proclaims that love that we have and shows that our lives are different because of it. When we draw near to Jesus, we draw near to the love that he has for us and the love we should have for him. And that love then flows directly into obedience. And he continues on. And in verse 27, he says this, peace I leave you, Peace I leave you with, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We see that the love Jesus has for us, it manifests peace in our soul. So when our hearts are troubled, we lean into Jesus, we lean into the helper, knowing that the love he has for us then manifests a peace within our souls. And Jesus continues on. He says, the peace that I give you is not like the world gives you. In the Old Testament, we know that false prophets often proclaimed peace to the nations when there was no peace. They gave a false sense of it. An example of that is Jeremiah 6. In the New Testament times, the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, was won and maintained by force. It was not a loving type of peace. It was won by force. When people say of the world, peace be with you, it's an expression of hope and goodwill. And when Jesus says, peace be with you, it's not just an expression of 
good will. It's an inward reality of our souls. That we really do have peace with Jesus. That he has brought this peace from God down to earth to the believer to enjoy. And it's a joy that we really can't fully comprehend. That's what Jesus has given us. This is a peace that will soothe our weary souls. When the world around us is in turmoil, we can run to Jesus. Because we know the Savior loves us. That he's given us peace. That he's given us joy. That he's given us hope if we draw near to him. In these closing verses, Jesus concludes that he is going back to the Father. That he's sending the Spirit and that their Spirit will be a teacher for them. Jesus is illustrated in this passage over and over just what he is doing. That he's going back to the Father, that the Spirit is coming, and that it won't just be there as a guide, it will be there to teach them, to lead them. Just as Jesus has led them physically on earth, we're going to have a helper that's going to guide us spiritually. They've been in this upper room after the supper, and now Jesus makes this um, change, and he goes and he moves them down to the garden, where eventually we're going to see that Jesus would then be arrested and where he would be taken away to eventually die on the cross. So John puts this word going, and he puts it in a light that he wants them to understand and believe. That Jesus is then serving their faith once again. That it's one thing to know where you're going, but it's another thing to actually get up and go do it. Jesus is, understand, is understanding that his time is almost up. And now it's time to leave the upper room and it's time to go down to the garden. Jesus is serving their faith and what he wants them to see and believe is that he eventually goes on and he says that the ruler of this world in verse 30 is coming. He wants them to understand that the ruler of the world, the devil, is real and he's active. But look what he continues to say. He says that he's ultimately powerless. He's real. He's active. We're not going to deny that. But Jesus says that the ruler of this world is powerless. Jesus calls the disciples to himself. He says, draw near to me. Don't draw near to the ruler of the world. Draw near to the savior of the universe. And he calls us to do the same. He calls us not to wander around, but he calls us to draw near to him, to focus on the Savior, to draw into the love of the Savior, to draw near to him, to feel his love, to feel his comfort, to feel his joy. And I know that So many of us are anxious and weary. Jesus calls us to draw near to him. And when we do, we receive this peace. We receive this love. And it's a love that we can't even fully comprehend. We can and should draw near in confidence to our Savior, knowing that he alone is the one able to provide us joy and hope. And I'm pleading with you today to draw near to Jesus in faith. As he says in verse 1, believe in me and have faith. 
Lean into, lean into him. And maybe for the first time today, you've seen this passage of what it means to draw near in confidence to Jesus, and you've realized that you have never put your faith in him. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And it's something that I can promise you that you will never regret. If you say yes to Jesus today, if you repent of your sins, believe what Jesus has done for us, it'll be something you never regret. After the service, Seth and I and many of the elders will be around. If that's you today, please come talk to us. If you're struggling today of drawing near to Jesus, you know you have a relationship with him, but you're struggling of drawing near to him, please come talk to us. We've said it over and over that this Christian life is not meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done in community. And we would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We want to support you. Because we're all trying to do this together. To draw near in confidence to the love of our Savior. May that be true of us today. Let's pray.